As far as we know, Gladys Berry Jicklian has never herself participated in, or is otherwise criminally liable for ending the life of any human being. All claims made in the following podcast to the contrary should thus be interpreted as metaphorical allusions to the effects of her policies. We're both in mourning too. Oh, yeah. Well, that's right. So, but extraordinary chance. Like, this has nothing to do with the fact we're doing a new episode, but we have, both of us, had teams in the grand finals, like the respective grand finals of the football codes that we follow, the National Rugby League and a game they call football, which is playing on cricket oval, I believe. Yeah, some some obscure game. Yeah. So that's and and we both crashed out in the in the grand final. More dramatically, I think in your case, I didn't actually. I, although I made some token effort to watch the AFL grand final because James's team was in it. Um, absolutely horrific, absolutely horrific. Yeah. But I'm well, still recovering. Mine, you've, I mean, you've had less than 24 hours. Well, that's right. No, we just. I mean, like it's. I, I, yeah, like. Yeah, it's been really, it's really raw for me. I mean, I don't know what, because we didn't have, I take it that it was traumatic for you because you kind of got ahead and then you like absolutely were smashed in, I guess, both the second of the, both two, the two last quarters, Q3. In like, like the last quarter and a half, we were absolutely spanked, but in a, in a manner that was, is almost unheard of. Like it was like unprecedented. It was just, it was absolutely traumatic in every way whatsoever. Uh, and I'm, I'm literally still recovering and this was like what eight nine days ago and I'm yeah. still in deep mourning because uh, our game came down to the wire yeah yours was yours in a way like a good worse. Game. yeah I don't know worse. if like I don't know if I go that far but yeah we we it was only clear that we were going to lose like in the last three minutes and it, oh. you know because we had and um yeah yeah it was tough but, it, but this is uh, in a way, I find it, it's, it. I don't know if it's easy to bear. But it's, it's one of those games, and there's a lot of games like this in the regular season, certainly in rugby league, where the, you know points margins are much smaller. Yeah. Where it's like, well, that's just that's pure chance. Like one tiny thing that it's any single refereeing decision in that game had gone a different way, like the outcome would have been different. And it, so there's no there's no kind of real logic to it. It's not like our oh, Penrith are the better better team. That's why they won. It just, just pure, pure chance. It's horrific stuff, and and I, that that is lo- losing a grand final in that manner is my absolute nightmares. Obviously, there's traumas, there's traumas associated with losing in a big way like we did. Mm. But if it had been, you know, a goal after the siren or something along those lines, I'm not sure if I'd ever recover. Uh, yeah, yeah. But here uh-huh. we are. I don't know. Like I feel like if we if we've been smashed, it would have been easier. You know. Yeah. It's like that's what you're saying. I don't. I don't I, I'm not sure about that. I don't know. I don't know. But haven't had to deal with it. Um. Yeah. Here, yeah. Here we are. Here we are. Still, still existing. Still going on. Plotting on. No. Go on. What is that Zoom background with the wolf in it? Like what mm. you use for teaching? Sometimes depends. Yeah, that is, depends. That is it based, depends on my mood. Based as f. Yeah. There's there's various pedagogical reasons. No, there's not. It just depends wow. on my mood. Yeah. 
what other moods do you have? Like, this is your, like, if you feel black metal, what are you? That's what I'm feeling. That's what I'm feeling. Uh, aggressive. What? The wolf. The wolf is there to, to, to scare away my children. <laughs> the children. My, your children. Your my children. That's right. Yeah. And what? What what's the other background? Like you put up like a clown or something if you're in a good mood. Yeah. No. No. I have I have a few. I have. Uh, what's what's that bizarre animal? Uh, I can't even remember what its oh, name oh, is platypus. now. No, it's not that one. I, can't, I actually can't even think of its name. But it's it's one of those absurd animals that you can't believe is real, and it's sitting under a waterfall. I, I'll have to think. I can't think of it now. But it's is, is it a dragon? No, or it's not. A dragon? <laughs> no, no. But the kids love it. The kids love it. I don't know why right. they do, but. I do, but uh, what do you use for black background? You, you just well, use, use it. I've got, I've got, blur it out. Know, I, I've got the blur on at the moment, and um, before that, I mean, my background here, like I, 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 you know, my home office, the back is just like it's it's a white blind which is drawn down over the windows behind me, right? So it's pretty much neutral backdrop anyway. But there's always like a little bit of something in there, like the, the um, lens is slightly too wide, so there's like always like a little bit of something going on. But yeah, I don't, I don't really fuck with backgrounds. Yeah, I, I tend to not. Generally, I haven't in the past either. But this has changed over the last few weeks. The real question here, Mark, is how do you feel to be back on the pot? How's it, how are the feelings? I, I feel I feel good. I mean, I feel like it. It generally is. I was thinking about this in advance of our conversation today, and it did occur to me really what this is about. Why I have called this meeting is that. <laughs> The stuff is happening and I, I want to think it through. And that's always been what the podcast has really been about utility-wise. Like I will upload the episode. People will be able to listen to it. Um, but, you know, we have a pretty small audience and goodness knows how kind of vestigial that audience is at the point in time when we haven't done a podcast in eight months, whatever it is. So the point of having the podcast is is to be able to have a conversation with you in a slightly structured way and try and work out what the fuck is going on. I can't yeah. wait. Because what do we? What's what's prompted this? Was it the resignation of Gladys Berejiklian that prompted this? I think it probably was. I was think it, so. That, it, it was. Yeah. It's it's the fact that we've both been following, despite the fact that I don't live in New South Wales and I essentially have no vested interest whatsoever. But obviously, having followed the friendly Geordie's law for the last mm. two years, I'm as invested as anyone, and that was the catalyst. Clearly. And and yeah. and uh, but also followed. I think the further catalyst was came this morning with uh, Johnny oh, B. Also resigned. But that's pure comedy. I mean, as as Geordie's tweeted today. So we've got a we're already name checking Jordan Shanks, comedian, friendly Geordie's on YouTube, Facebook, you know, Twitter, etc. He tweeted today like this is a bad day for comedians. And I, th- I think actually all he meant by that was you know like oh Barilaro was such a lol cow like it's a pity we don't have him anymore. But I mean, I, I took it in a slightly different way initially, which is not how I think he meant it, but that, you know, you can't, it's, I mean, it's like the Trump thing with like, you know, what do you, how do you, you can't satirize Trump. Like they constantly tried to satirize Trump, but like, you know, reality was funnier. Trump is funnier than the satires of Trump. Yeah. And, and I don't know if that's true of Barilaro, but like the, the what's happened, Barilaro's resignation is not, is not like funny. You know, it's, I mean, it is, but it's not, there's no joke to make about it. No, uh, the the thing that keeps bothering me since you said it a couple of days ago is that what's really going to happen here, probably, and I think you're right, is this is really going to be the 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 point at which Australians turn on the idea of a 
independent corruption commission. This is really what it's going to be. It's going to be the girl boss narrative is going to win. And this is going to spell the end for any kind of federal ICAP. Yeah, well, not that there was really... I mean, the idea of federal ICAP being a going concern has always been fairly remote. Um, and actually, I take it because... Maybe I'm going a bit of a limb here, but I take it because of the effectiveness of New South Wales ICAC. Like, I mean, Geordie's was saying this in his video about Gladys's resignation. The ICAC was put in place, you know, by one side of politics and I hope it would prosecute the other, but it's been quite effective at prosecuting both, both sides of politics. And that that's a problem. And once that once it became clear that that's what an ICAC means, you'll never you'll never get politicians putting it up, because so neither side of politics actually wants wants a genuinely independent commission against corruption uh, to, to be ongoing. I mean the the New South Wales one, like I don't know if they can. I mean actually, what I said was nothing to do with the national one. It was like I think this is this is going to lead to the, them getting rid of the New South Wales ICAC. Uh, ICAC for you know, international listeners is the Independent Commission Against Corruption, which exists in New South Wales. They have one in Victoria, James. It's called something else, isn't it? But they've got one. They do have one. I don't even yeah. know what the I don't even know what the acronym is. I feel like it isn't as prominent. It has a different name, and it's all based on it's based on that they had one in Hong Kong first. It's a Hong Kong model. I have no idea why or what the Hong Kong one does, but that's where the idea originally came from. And it's very effective in well, very effective is going too far, but it's like somewhat effective at punishing the most corrupt politicians, most venial politicians after they've left office in New South Wales, on a kind of rolling basis. But after they've left office, it generally doesn't, generally hasn't, the axe hasn't fallen on people while they've been in office. Who exposed the former Labor leader of the New South Wales? Uh, uh, of the New South Wales government, so the the opposition leader who resigned for accepting a bottle of wine. No, that was no, that was our that was our state premier, the Liberal premier Barry O'Farrell. Was it? Okay, I so, believe I so. It, I thought it was the Labor opposition leader. My no, mistake. no, no, it um, was it was the premier. That's how Gladys got in. Oh, of course, that's Whereas, right. Yeah, but yeah, it was yeah, hilarious. Yeah. It's hilarious in retrospect because what like what he'd done, which was to like accept a bottle of quite expensive wine. Yep. Um, without declaring it or whatever, and then then fell on his sword compared to what Gladys has That's now right. openly done. It was was nothing. I'm pretty sure. Uh, maybe he was only leader. Of, yeah, okay. That's I. I'm no. He was premier. He was premier. In fact, for over three years prior yep. to that. Uh, although he was succeeded by Baird, I'm apologised. There was another banker in the office for again almost oh, three oh, Baird, years. Of course. Yeah, I don't know how I forgot about that since I was living in New South Wales for the entirety of his office. Um, so, so, look, here's a, here's a question if I can ask this to you. Because yeah. this this to me looks, I can't explain this. And and anyone who's followed Fairfax, whether the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age over the last week would have noticed this. H- how is it that Gladys can be as popular as she is given She's done what she's alleged to have done. That is to say, how could it be the? How could it be that even after she has resigned for, you know, in the in the wake of allegations of corruption and not just accepting a bottle of wine, severe, potentially criminal behaviour, how could they? She still have opinion pieces in one of the major mastheads of of Sydney defending her. I mean, the Sydney the cynic in me says, well, of course she could. You know why are you surprised, James? But this is a, g- a genuine question. Like, how has it got to the point where a significant portion of the media class, but also presumably the population, just has no worries about this? Yeah, I don't. Know, I don't know. It's an interesting question because you're raising this question about the population. Actually, I don't know where the the polling is currently about about Gladys. But I, and I was kind of just going to Google it. Then look, there's 
I'm not, this is my analysis going back for a while. I think I may even have aired it on the pod before with Gladys, but Gladys has had this incredible kind of Teflon character because obviously she appeals to the right because she's a right wing, you know, she's liberal party um, bourgeois, you know, candidate. So obviously that means that the media outlets, which are, you know, unashamedly right wing, the Murdoch media, basically, which is the, the main newspaper in Sydney, the Daily Telegraph is, you know, controlled by Murdoch. So obviously that's pro Gladys and runs a pro Gladys line consistently. Pretty consistently. I mean, obviously, the occasional kind of weak criticism for one thing or another. But um, now, the, the real question is the Sydney Morning Herald, which James, you've just brought up. So, Sydney Morning Herald is the historic broadsheet. Obviously, nothing really is published in broadsheet anymore. But the, the the broadsheet, the you know, the newspaper of the educated, well-to-do in Sydney, <laughs> the Sydney Morning Herald, um, owned by well, uh, part of it's part of a media conglomerate called Fairfax, which has uh, for a couple of years now been owned by Channel Nine, a television channel, um, which has meant that it, its political position is quite ambiguous. I mean, actually, which is in line with historically what Fairfax has been. Like prior to Channel 9 taking it over, Fairfax had, had a bit of a woke turn and had been increasingly a kind of lefty paper, I think. Um, and that that character's gone again, but it, it, it didn't. it never used to be. It used to be a kind of like fairly centrist publication for most of its history and it's been around for a long long time I mean, it's like well over 100 years so but they're very pro Gladys but anyway look, the, the point here is that enough of the left wing of what, what passes for left wing opinion is carried by the fact that Gladys Berejiklian is female identifying like the, her being a woman is enough to carry much of the left and between the two things, between the fact she's the rights choice plus a woman, is enough to give like produce pretty much media hegemony for her. The fact that she's like you know some like I guess the child of immigrants, like depending how you define it, certainly on the conventional way of defining these things in Australia, kind of an ethnic minority person, also clearly counts in her favour on in that constituency. So yeah, that that means she's she's had it pretty much set up. There's another factor to be mentioned here, which is COVID incumbency, which is mm. politically huge. And the, the bottom line seems to be with COVID that everyone who's an incumbent is basically like a war premier. Like it doesn't matter what their politics is, it doesn't matter what they've done about COVID. People are like, you know, really sticking to the existing leaders during COVID. And we've seen this when we've had elections in Australia, like the incumbents just just romp home and it, it kind of just doesn't matter. And it, I mean, interestingly, it doesn't matter then really what the media do. I mean, so you had, um, did you have an election down there? I don't think you did. When? Recently. Since the state election? Yeah, no. no. But I mean, they have one in SA, I think, and Western Australia is the clear example here. But you also have one in Queensland. Queensland, I mean, Queensland's, Queensland and Western Australia are both really like incredible examples. They both had Labour premiers in the state. They're both basically right-wing states who don't usually have Labour governments. They're both states where the Murdoch media control, or where Murdoch has way more of a monopoly on the media than he does in the states like Victoria and New South Wales that have some kind of independent press. Despite this, these features of the thing, and they had these, you know, Palaszczuk, as she calls herself, and Mark McGowan, are 
both premiers who were really quite hard, had very hard measures, were hugely criticised in the press for their hard measures, much like dictator Dan down in Melbourne. Um, but that didn't make a difference to them, like absolutely smashing it at the ballot box. So it's not, I mean, actually, the, all the indications are, and this I think is ultimately why, why Gladys is, is popular, and it is absolutely eye-watering. I mean, this is the, the point at which we have, the, the, you know, this is what led us into the studio, so to speak, not that we actually have a studio, but like into this Zoom call, <laughs> recorded Zoom call, because like it, it's just absolutely mind-boggling for me to go on Facebook and see all these normies on Facebook pages going, oh, you know, thanks, Gladys, she has saved us from COVID. <laughs> when this, it, it's, it's not, it would be more true to say that Gladys has single-handedly and deliberately infected this entire country with COVID-19 yeah. to prove a political point. That is, that would be, I'm not saying that is the absolute little truth, but that is more true than saying yeah. what, I've seen people saying like, Gladys has saved thousands of lives. Gladys has blood on her hands she is yep. up to her elbows in the blood of dead people that she has killed and not only has she killed people because obviously apparently as far as i can work out from facebook at the moment it's very popular to be pro-death also from twitter you know whether it be like the insane um people who can't spell on facebook or it be people who read Giorgio Gambin on Twitter, they all seem to just love the idea of being wiped out by a plague. And, you know, okay, fair enough. But the lockdowns, which all these people obviously hate, were also caused by this, would not have happened. But were not for Gladys. If Gladys, as I think I said to you, certainly was saying to anyone who would listen a couple of days ago, if Gladys had resigned when the corruption that she's been involved in was first revealed whatever it was, like a year ago, we quite possibly would have been spared all this. Yeah, this is the, I think this is one reason, and I think, again, this is one of the reasons for the, for the pod or re, uh, reanimating the pod. It really is this, I mean, I think I have this experience a lot and I presume you do too, but this idea in which what the majority of people tend to be saying seems to have absolutely no connection at all to what's happening empirically. And I mean that in the most like banal sense of the word. When you see people sort of lauding uh, Gladys and others, it, it, it flies in the face of what is actually happening in the world. It's just, it's totally beyond any understanding. And, and I think this is, there's a lot of things at stake, but sorry, at play. But as you say, Gladys literally has blood on her hands insofar as she relented to this, business interest death cult, <laughs> essentially, predicated the whole COVID debate around these false binary choices between X and Y, neither of which were, you know, the only legitimate choices by any means, whether it's locking down forever versus opening up to everyone, all these kinds of pseudo choices. And it was those, and this is all the result of business lobbies and all of these vested interests and she relented to this, whether out of cowardice or ideology or both or whatever. Uh, and to see people even giving her one iota of respect to me is just, I just don't understand it. It's completely beyond any comprehension. And to me, it's the kind of one of the most 
striking examples of just off chops nonsense that I've ever seen. And I, and I can't account for it other than the fact that most people are either, it's either me or others have completely lost the plot. Well, not in what you're raising there, James. So, <laughs> because, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, you're raising a very general philosophical question, which is a really interesting one. And I'm not sure what to say about it. It's absolutely right that, like, what people are saying about Berejiklian, I mean, I guess at a basic level, there's a, there's, there's a form of identification going on. And you see it all. I mean, this, this was how, you know, Berejiklian stayed in office, this whole kind of like inviting people to identify with her. With her ridiculous love affair, which apparently a lot of women identify with. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, I cannot identify with the Maguire thing, like, at all. Like, I, I you know, I, my, my sexual sins are extremely bad, varied. Uh, I do not think that, <laughs> you know, I, I, overlooking the criminality of somebody because I was in love with them is something that is in any way. I mean, like, but you know, I think probably I'm just too super egotic. Like that's not, um, but also I, mean, what, I mean, it's not for me to, to, to say what the, what the goals of feminism are, but what an own goal. I mean, these kind of, these kind of Fairfax tier takes feminist takes, which suggests that this is some kind of feminist story or some kind of narrative, uh, coming out of these feminist ideas, the idea that she, you know, she was unlucky in love or, you know, couldn't, couldn't choose the one she fell in love with. And I, these are literally expressions you see written in the newspaper. You know, you can't choose who you fall in love with, but, and you just think, what has this got to do with public office? What the fuck is going on? Well, that's the, that's the Geordie's, I mean, which is fair. Like, obviously this is nothing, it has nothing to do with public office, public office. It's like, it's ridiculous, but it's also like, it's also just complete, complete nonsense. I mean, the, the, the basic premise should not be granted. It is not true that you do not engage volitionally in falling in love. But the idea yeah, that yeah, falling in love, right. but it, but it's this whole, you know, but, but this is, this is where we're at now, you know, like the, where, where is, where is volition? Like in our <laughs> imagination. No, but when we, when we imagine a human being now, where I do not believe that. I mean, and look, to be honest, like I don't, I'm not the biggest fan of volition. Like I'm not a voluntarist. Like I don't, you know, I, I think our ability to choose anything is, is, you know, I mean, ultimately I think it's pretty illusory. Like I don't, you know, I believe that free will is a, is a, is a mysterious phenomenon um, that exists in some sense, but I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not like a metaphysical libertarian or something. However, th there is no concept of the will anymore. There's because how we are imagined to be now is I mean look I'm gonna you know help myself to a lot of my own like partially unpublished ruminations on this subject but we imagine human beings to be essentially perfect and complete entities whose problems are entirely not of their own doing and consequently whatever problem somebody has it's always externalized so if you and the, the really key case in my mind is if mental illness, like if you, if you are neurodivergent, as they now call it, it's because something is wrong with your brain mm. um, and, and can be corrected with chemicals or whatever. And that will see you become your normal self as you should be. Yeah. And I, but this, but this understanding of Berejiklian's position effectively pathologizes love. Like it means it's love is a kind of horrendous accident, which befalls you 
which you have no control over, much like being depressed is now, right? Mm. Um, so there's no, which, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like, okay, volition is what, it, you know, what I think about volition is, is complicated and ultimately I think inexpressible. But like that, that's all, it's all voluntary to some extent. How you interact with the world is within whatever your will is, the capacity of your will to shape. But that, I honestly think people's self-conception of you know, people, conception of themselves, conception of other people around them will only allow that to be the case when they want to condemn someone. That if you have any form of identification with someone, you don't allow that that's true of yourself. You say, I am someone who everything happens to me. I have no choice in it. And if you identify with someone, you go, oh, everything that happens to them is not their fault. I mean, of course, it, you know, if, if it's a matter of sending someone you don't like to prison, then you will blame them for things which are like clearly outside of their control. I mean, look at the way they talk about Trump, a man who is clearly a psychopath. But like, that's clearly not, I mean, how is that his fault that he's a psychopath? It clearly isn't. You know, but it's, it's, it's ableist to be, to, to condemn Trump. Because the guy is, the guy, is, the guy, is, the guy has a, a genuine condition. Um, he's, he's a pathological narcissist. But people say he's a pathological narcissist in a way that suggests it's, it's, it's a moral failing to be a pathological narcissist, which I kind of agree it is, but that only makes sense if you say it's, a, it's voluntary. Mm, I think that's. I think that's gets to the heart of it. Uh, I guess the, the question is then, what does this mean for politics if we accept? And I mean that just on the on the on a, on a more day to day level, you know, dealing with politicians, as it were. What do we make of this if this is going to be a common refrain now? The idea that look, here are these here are these things that are outside of my control, you know, things like love being one of them and presumably falling in love with a corrupt person and then presumably having dealings with that corrupt person. What does that mean for how we talk about and also judge political agents? Because to me, it seems like we just, what, what we end up doing is just naturalising the kind of various present conditions that we find ourselves in, which of course is already the case, but it seems like an even further naturalisation because it almost seems to me that the indifference that people show towards this level of corruption, and perhaps I'm being romantic here, but it's, it strikes me that if the level of Gladys's corruption had been exposed 20, 30 years ago, there would have been far more of an outcry. It strikes me that the, the, the indifference that this level of corruption is met with is a sign of the kind of absolutely most, like most like kind of horrible implications associated with like the naturalization of like current conditions and the fact and this idea that they can't be changed so the idea is that you know politicians are just in and of themselves greedy and morally corrupt people which was always kind of accepted in some sense but now seems to have been kind of pathologized to the point of a kind of purely natural state yeah i mean what does what does that what does that mean there's a serious question which has been raised by at least one person i retweeted about this i forget who now it's it's a little bit unclear. Maybe it's Brian. In fact, uh, apologies to Brian if I falsely attributed this view to you. But yeah, like what is the st status of the concept of corruption in neoliberalism? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, because it, it to be honest, it doesn't really make sense the concept anymore. You need to have an idea of a of a system, you know, where you know avarice is kept at bay. Mm. Mm. Once you have neoliberalism, like none of it makes any sense. I mean, ultimately, it'll all crack up. Like you know the. I mean, the thing that comes to mind is like drugs, right? Like, okay, they're still like a lot of drugs are still illegal for now, but surely that's like moribund. 
Like, surely it's only a matter of time before they just legalize them all and turn them into commodities. By the same token, yeah. I mean, yeah, what, what what Gladys has done, what's the difference? You know, what's, you know, I mean, one thing we're seeing with, with Barilaro, Barilaro did this, like, more blatantly, actually, than Maguire. Maguire got caught doing doing shit, which is really trivial and incompetent. I mean, it's so funny because he's just, like, couldn't even do it properly. Like, he's, like, bragging. I mean, he's on the court on the phone bragging to Gladys that he's, like, was going to, like, make a few grand on some kind of, it was absolutely pitiful. Like, yeah, just my yeah, pathetic, that's, that's, sweaty, that's, fat man. That's the other thing too. Is like the, the the levels of like the amounts of money we're talking about in these levels of and uh, these corruption cases are so kind of pitiful. It's just yeah. it's just it's just a joke. Well, that's but it, the whole thing's a joke. I mean, that's that that's another that's another point we should probably broach. Which is state state politics in Australia is itself absolutely farcical, but because of the you know that it's absolute Mickey Mouse stuff. I mean, even the federal parliament in Australia, as as correctly satirised in the Simpsons, is a joke. Like politics in Australia is a joke. <laughs> it's a ludicrous backwater of a country, and you know it's it's somewhere where if you mm. if you want to make serious money, you're not going to go into politics. If you want, I mean, like no, th- th- there's there's no there's or there's very little conveyor belt for like people who are at all serious or talented. Like we occasionally get one through various means, but basically people who have serious ambitional talent are not going into politics in Australia. And the Scott, Scott Morrison is perhaps the best example of this because he is yep. someone who, you know, clearly did have the desire to get become prime minister of Australia um, and was able to fulfill this, but he's pathetic. <laughs> like he's, he's a pathetic a, he's guy a, who couldn't have made it in the private sector. He's and, a classic third tier talent. He's yeah. He's a joke. Just, I mean, yeah. the, exce- the exceptions are like, so Ruddy is an exception to this and he's an exception to this because he's, he's an Australian who was a career diplomat. So he he actually did have some serious ambition, but that led him to the prime ministership and kind of beyond it. The other really important exception, interesting, is Turnbull, who's a guy who basically made it, was so successful, made his money in the private sphere and was like, okay, fine, I'm just going to have a crack at doing politics now as like a hobby. So that was, <laughs> I think he was he was reasonably good. Although, I mean, the problem with him is he was so, like he actually just wanted, ultimately was just a CV filler who wanted to put Prime Minister of Australia on his CV and ultimately was willing to just to do whatever he needed to become Prime Minister. So actually did nothing good in office. Wright is, is the only good uh, politician, you know, who's risen to that office in this century. I, I feel like I've got off the topic, but gonna, I was going to say something quite different. No, I mean, I take it this was going to go, assuming it was, Brian's point, and I think it was Brian, that you know, corruption as a concept is incoherent if we're operating in a corrupt system. Mm. Which it seems that at this point, you know, at this point of, and I don't like to use this overused word, but it is appropriate neoliberalism. This you know, late era neoliberalism where everyone don't, don't apologise for using the phrase neoliberalism. Like I don't, I've, I've, you know, I, I, I am as irritated. Like all these people who profess to be irritated by the word neoliberalism because they have IQs of 111 and cannot work out what the phrase means. Like don't apologise. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's right. a rigorous and coherent concept. All right, I retract. I retract my, uh, my apology. Uh, you know, it does seem that at this point in where we find ourselves in neoliberal politics and indeed neoliberal society, that the term corruption is sorry the concept corruption is just incoherent and so of course the only rational response to that as a citizen is to shrug your shoulders or to do to do what i do which is just to spend your whole life perpetually enraged which is probably worse to be honest but i take it this to be brian's point yeah i don't know if it's Brian. i mean obviously this uh, this point i want to invoke you know the the immortal and very rarely heard Words of Michel Foucault, 
which are there is there is a single moral imperative which is never to do politics. Je ne proposerai donc en tout ceci qu'un seul impératif, mais celui-là sera catégorique et inconditionnel, ne faire jamais de politique. You're the Foucault man. What do you take this to mean? I kind of forget what I've written about this now, which is quite substantial. I in the book on my shelf. Like, what did I say? We're getting these. I'm constantly getting like robotic spam calls. Like, you know, the, the recorded voice is telling me that. Yeah. So that was my phone going. What are they spamming about, like, you about? I don't know what they, they claim. You know, it's like a recorded American robot voice telling me I've like been like found guilty of drug smuggling <laughs> or something. I need to send ten thousand dollars to their Steam account. Checks out. Um, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> That's like that's literally eighty percent of the phone calls I receive now. <laughs> like Steam account. Well, because to be fair, they don't do that's the, that's the Nigerian scammers who email you. Not that I really get those anymore, but that, yeah, that was because the, they always want like Steam vouchers, and they try. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta. Uh, I mean, I mean, who's among us? Yeah. But if you go, if you go to the if you go to the supermarket now, like which I haven't done because of lockdown and my fear of coronavirus for the last month, but you know, the, the, if you go to the supermarket, they have like at the till they have. You know the self-service tools. They have like a notice up saying, if someone tells you to buy like Woolworths or Coles vouchers because of government debt, like don't do it. don't do it, people, because the guys are telling you. Because that's those apparently it's not. It's really funny because it's not like they're using crypto or something for this shit. It's it's like they use like vouchers, which are like the new form of transferable currency, untraceable. Like you buy buy someone Coles vouchers and they can then launder the money. Um, I was about to say something more sensible, which is about, about Foucault. Look, I mean, I guess there's one way of reading this is, and this is, you know, the kind of continual argument I have or misunderstanding I have with people, um, you know, who've been reading more recent French thinkers. But like, you know, Rancière and Badiou have this concept of politics that is more or less the exact opposite of what Foucault's talking about here. Like Foucault, when Foucault says politics, he means like the politics of the state or something like that. That would be like one way of understanding it. Like, oh, he's against politics that has to do with like the state. But he's perfectly, you know, he's on board clearly with politics, which is like about the resistance of the people to the state or something. Right, like right, that. right. That's which is what like someone like you know, Badiou or Ronsier would deem that to be the only true politic. But you know, that is not what like it, that, that's not what you know anyone else means by that term or what the term means in my view since it's clearly derived from the word police and then you have this problem in Rancière that he has to introduce the term police to mean what anyone else would call politics um and not what anyone else would call police because he's reserved the word politics for um what you know is called politics by people on the left but is not what most people most people when they say politics they mean like politicians and stuff like that anyway but I, I, I would at this point certainly read, and I mean, this goes back to our last episode of Metacritic, I think, which was the kind of really black-pilled one. <laughs> I, I think, or politically black-pilled, I think that's what I said at the time. Like, I think any form of politics is clearly, I, I want to say bad engagement in politics, even if it's like absolutely anti-establishment, anti-state. I mean, we, I feel we see enough evidence of this now is like i mean what is it it's like a certainly in the current situation it's like a kind of crazy cope with yep. the the situation we find ourselves in because none of this posturing doesn't matter how radical you know philosophically politically radical it is like 
you know, I mean, even if we talk about like Amy Therese or something, you know, we talk about the post-left people critiquing the left from outside and pointing out that the left are part of the establishment, which is like a perfectly accurate analysis, I think. Um, in, in a way, I've been saying this for a long time. But it, what, what are you then doing? Like if, if your point is then to say, well, there is some, some other politics is possible, which is more, more left-wing than you can possibly imagine. Well, that, that's like, I mean, just total metaphysical speculation. So if we have to spell this out a little bit, so if we take it to mean, to, to take your uh, extension of Foucault's point, which is to say something like politics is bad, Right. So which by which we mean something like politics, i.e., you know, the state or the machinations of the state is bad. Now, do you mean bad simply as in not desirable or do you mean it is in actually deeply corrupted? Do you mean evil? Do you mean it actually, you know, for example, reinforces the violence of the state, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what's the issue here? Because I'm thinking more along kind of, and I'll, I mean, we can talk about this in a second, but I'm thinking more along the lines of, maybe Adorno's lines, which is kind of, you know, total pessimism, but also like refracted with a, with a kind of essential optimism. But I'm interested to know what you think. Well, I mean, I'm, yeah, I don't know if I'm really teddy-pilled on this, but I think um, <laughs> I think that they kind of, some kind of combination of pessimism and optimism is called for, but I guess exactly the coordinates you may disagree about. Look, the, uh, it's a very good question, James, and like the fundamental issue here is, as far as I'm concerned from the Foucauldian perspective, it's about complexity. And the, the the attempt to to rationalise what is incalculably complex, namely society. So any form of politics, including the cringe radical left version of politics, which claims to be against politics or claims to be the only real politics, as far as I'm concerned, is mired in an attempt to engage in a form of Machiavellian thinking, ultimately. I mean, that's really what it goes back to, right? They think you can somehow cognize the coordinates of society and engage in targeted interventions. And that's what the state does, but it's also what basically the left is doing. I mean, I guess the exception, which would be, you know, Foucault's exception, things he was willing to get involved with, which may indeed be also, you know, what a hardcore bad Uian might consider politics as well, mm. is a kind of... Embrace of a, a spontaneous resistance, which is not premised on rationalization, and I, I think that's probably it's probably fair to say that like bad user account of politics does escape that. But yeah, bad user account of politics is not about like going, oh look, these these this is the strategic procedure we need to put in place, which most most communist politics doesn't. Like clearly, most communist politics like is completely premised on having one a Marxist analysis of society, which much though I may be sympathetic to it i do not believe is inerrant and secondly believing that we can have then interventions in the political field which claim to have certain outcomes and and this i, I mean this is really key, key to me in terms of saying like you know we can't engage in politics because if i say you know let's go out to the protest right the standard narrative is like somehow the protests are form praxis which will help us get towards x goal now, I, I think that's false. Like, it's straightforwardly false. And it's bad in the sense that I you know, developed not because it violates any kind of normative position I have. 
it's bad at the level of reasoning because it goes like, ah, oh, yes, if we go to enough refugee protests, eventually the government will change the refugee policy. There's literally no reason to believe that. Hmm. There's no reason to believe that protest that it has any form of regular. Um, sorry, my daughter's cry. I'm just going to go for a minute. I'm going to put you on pause. You can think sure. About no worries. A few moments later. Um, I got Freya with me now, but she's she's on instructions not to be to be quiet. Let's see how that goes. So what do you? Do you do you want to take it from there? I feel like I was still kind of... Yeah, no, I was just thinking, that. like, I think it comes back to that question is, I, I think, look, I, on the one hand, I think I sort of agree and disagree with you. Like, on the one hand, I agree with you that this, this idea that, you know, if you go to X amount of marches or protests that you will see material change. I mean, that clearly is empirically wrong, at least in the current conditions. But I guess there'd be two things to say here. One is that it would, it's not necessarily always the case, although that would obviously entail some pretty significant changes to the manner of protesting and manner of political movement. Also, the other point is, I mean, maybe is it the case that people who do attend, you know, someone I've attended, you know, many protests in my time, uh, not as many as, as many of my friends, but... Is it the case that they actually do think that this is going to lead to material changes or do they see it more as a symbolic thing, which is to say uh, the need to associate yourself or the need to express solidarity with a particular position, which you know may or may not lead to material change, but is vital to express. So to take this on second thing, you know, it's better to have people expressing their fury at asylum seeker policy rather than none at all just regardless of the fact that we cannot see any material changes to policy, at least in the short term. I mean, I'm genuinely, this is what I don't know. Is that I actually don't know what people, my assumption is that people are aware of this, this distinction and the, the kind of the difficulty, but it could be true that what you're saying, which is that people genuinely do think that what they're about, to, what they're going to do in the, over the next year or two is going to see substantial change, political change. So there's a lot to say there. I mean, one thing that really comes out in what you're saying is I think that people's motivations for engaging in you know, political activity are really complex. So there's a yeah. lot of stuff going on. And it's never about the rationality is, that, I mean, you know, <laughs> reason is the slave of the passion. So like the reason people go out in the protest is never pure rationality. Like it has to serve something else. I feel fairly sure that people are not in general aware of these distinctions. That's the only thing you say that I think I really disagree with. I don't think most people have mm. any clue the distinctions are there. I think most people, you know, just simultaneously, they act out of emotion, but they believe somehow in an, uh, something like the magic relationship between their emotion and, and reality, that if they express their emotion, it will actually produce what they want to see. I mean, this is, you know, be the change you want to see in the world kind of logic. Like if I act according to my own authentic emotions, that will set things to right. Because that's how we understand ourselves. Again, it's, it's kind of how people understand themselves today. They understand themselves to be, you know, perfect, perfect little monads. And, you know, if they don't like something, that must be inerrant as a form of political opinion. There's no strategic analysis needed. And that if they express how they feel, then that will have political consequences because that is the true expression of their feelings. And that is the, the most important thing in the world is to express. Yeah, people trust that as long as they show their true feelings, that will that will be, you know, clearly effective. And so ultimately the, the, the whole thing is narcissistic. But ultimately it's what passes for politics from all sides is effectively now in our society, in our narcissistic society, a form of narcissism. Now, you know, 
there's certainly an argument that says under certain conditions or, you know, nonetheless, we should spontaneously, you know, pursue the truth of the political events. You know, this supposedly escapes from narcissism because the subject that's invoked by the event is, is not an individual subject, that it's a subject greater than oneself and by participating in that political subjectivity, then I'm talking about bad use schema here, but, but by participating in that subjectivity, we actually become part of something larger than ourselves. And, you know, that's, that's good as long as the cause is that. Yeah. Um, I don't believe, for example, I mean, and to be honest, like, you know, the cause itself isn't determinant, right? So, you know, perhaps some people who are involved in refugee advocacy are, have that kind of somehow universal communist perspective that lifts them above themselves and gives them solidarity with their fellow man. But it's also equally clear, I think, that lots of people involved in that kind of thing are um, in some form of narcissistic circuit. It's also true that from the point of view of a refugee, <laughs> it doesn't matter like what the motivations yeah. people involved are. It matters like, you know, what helps them, which incidentally, I don't think is is really in the frame of anyone, you know, because the, the kind of pure, that calculation is literally impossible to make. Like mm. the idea, this kind of like, this is what will help refugees. Well, people will tell you, you know, okay, we need to do something. Well, that's, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, here, I'm a political nihilist. I, I literally don't, don't believe that it's clear that doing something is more useful than doing nothing from a political point of view because the, the effects are so complex. It's entirely yeah. possible that by doing something, you will create, you know, you will be the boogeyman that the right needs to, you know, demonize refugees. You go look at all these, like, smelly protesters who are on their side. You, you literally can't win playing that game. Yeah, I'm I'm sympathetic to that, but I think I have to. I think just because of the slightly different positions we have, I have to hold back from that final conclusion. But I have to say, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the broadly Bajuian position. I guess, but I'm I'm slightly more to use your expression, Teddy Pill, insofar as I basically think that you know a form of total pessimism refracted through a form of optimism that thinks that you know, and as you say, I guess I guess it's really a way of uh, different ways of dealing with the radical uncertainty of of the political situation which I, I agree with completely I think uh, to go back to our one of our earlier <laughs> positions which is that no one has any idea what's going on I agree with this but I think out of that you know the fact that things are so odd and things are so complex that things can change and things can happen that are unexpected and I think that by approaching the world with a kind of I guess I want to call it optimistic gloominess that there are avenues for sort of qualitatively new forms of solidarity to emerge. Whether it would ever happen is another matter entirely, but I do think that one should proceed as if they might. That's, that's probably how I, in some ways, I think we're basically looking at, looking at the same problem and have, have, with a slightly different solution, but that's my position that I think that, you know, there, there can be a form of optimism that emerges from the sort of wasteland of today insofar as that, you know, things could be otherwise. Now, I suspect you might take that as slightly cringe, but nonetheless, it's my position. I mean, I, I kind of agree. This goes back to this thing about pessimism versus optimism. And firstly, I should say, like you, I'm basically very sympathetic to bad news. Like, I think it's very clear bad news is the most important living philosopher. I, everything I'm saying is defined against bad news because I think bad news takes you as far as you can go. Hmm. Like, but I have to have the break. So Badu is like an absolutely privileged interlocutor here for me. In terms of the, you know, optimism versus pessimism, I mean, like, uh, yeah, like, 
theoretically, like I'm in favor of a profound optimism here. But it's, mm. it's, I mean, in here, you know, again, like this is, this shows the reference back to Badiou and what's been happening in France. But it's like my position is, is kind of Mayasuya, um, like referring to, to Quentin Mayasu's philosophy. Um, Mayasu is a kind of post Badiouian, like younger generation of philosopher in France. His mantra is that anything can happen at any time for any reason. Yeah. So I believe that's true. But of course, that, that's, that's a metaphysical claim, not a political claim. And I believe yeah. in it metaphysically. So, you know, the, the hope for me is like far broader spectrum than just political. Like it's not like, oh yeah, like at some point a new form of political solidarity can emerge. Yeah, sure, that's true. Mm. But like, it's also possible that, you know, the entire nature of reality will be reconfigured. And that that might sound completely ridiculous as a form of hope. I mean, the, the, the point for me is like, yeah, like, yeah, we, we should hope. But that doesn't lead to action. The, the action is, yeah. you know, the idea of engaging in political action is not hopeful at all. Yeah. Which I mean, I, say, I think at this point I'm fairly in agreement with Teddy. I don't because I don't think he he wanted you to go to a protest either. No, I, I I'm actually really struck by your, your your use of the term you know um, magical relationship between the protester and the and the and the and the perceived issue. I think that in some ways is precisely right. But I also think in in some ways it, it's indicative of the of the broader uh, situation. And I think it comes back to our original problem, which is you know how do people accept this this state of affairs, you know, the levels of corruption, the levels of just total indifference to the public good. Uh, and it does seem that, you know, in a world or a situation in which the neo levels of neoliberal corruption are indeed naturalised and considered unchangeable, that all that's left is a kind of magical incantation, which one, which one does anyway. But it's really to us, and I mean, I don't think I agree that it's a form of narcissism, but it's certainly to it's more to do with one's own emotions and one's own anxieties than actually changing the material conditions of the world or society. Now that's really, that's really good. But in fact, and what occurs to me to say there is that, I mean, I'm not necessarily against, you know, the magic, but I no. feel it's, it's, it's the opposite. It's like, if, if we're gonna, if we're gonna be magical, let's be magical. Like yeah. if if we if we're gonna hope to change it through an incantation, let's engage in incantations. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the, the problem with politics and why it's so cringe that is precisely that it's like a religious urge manifesting in a secular manner by people who are in denial about what they're doing. So yeah, like no, if we're is, gonna if we're gonna right. be in a in a cult, let's not be trots. Let's <laughs> let's join a religion. Like that's the point at which you, you're actually <laughs> engaging, you actually self-consciously know that you're engaging in a form of subjective function. That is about, you know, all the things it's about, not that sublimates itself under under some, you know, dubious historiography, which makes you the actor in history and says, you know, you're the messiah, because <laughs> because you're not. Where's the lie? <laughs> I mean, I mean, there. Are, I guess there. Are, I guess part of me wants to say there are other forms of magic ritual other than the religious, but I absolutely take your point. And I, yeah, and I take those are those are like blasphemous and pagan. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, I, I guess the, the problem here, though, is and like part of again, as you know, part of me is sympathetic to this take. Does this position just therefore imply a total renouncement of the physical, though? In so so far as you know, in so that is that is to say, of the physical world. You know, if we just turn our turn our attention to God. And and the infinite, as it were. I mean, does that have any 
is it is the implication here that we just ignore the political as a part of a you know vulgar and unimportant material concern or is the idea that when we when we turn to the religious that we are able to transform the world the material world in a in a in a matter that is better well, I don't think it's any of those. I mean, it, it certainly doesn't imply ignoring anything physical or material. Isn't there's no, I don't see how you, how you would get that. I mean, it's your Platonism showing through, I, su- I suspect, there. Like, <laughs> I guess my question would, okay, let me rephrase the question. How is the religious turn, how does it therefore impact the political? Well, it's, but it's not designed to be impactful. I mean, the point is, like, it doesn't right. make the political go away. It doesn't mean the political is not important. It just means that the political is not, is relegated to the trivial function it actually has. Right, right. Like, we, I mean, I guess not always trivial, but, um, you know, relatively unimportant. Like, you need to, yeah, religion needs to regain its its supervenience over the political. And the political's only ever, only managed to come to this, the, the fore in this way in people's imagination because religion's disappeared. So you, so, you, so you take it that politics has filled the void left by religion. Is that, is that your... Certainly among... Not for, not for most people. Yeah. But for people we're more familiar with, people like right. us, who've become obsessed with politics. Yeah, absolutely. So for, you know, if you're... It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, a cringe libertard or you're a leftist or you're, you know, Bernie bro or you're a neo-Nazi, like any of these like ridiculous internet-based you know, obsessional political positions are people who are looking for something. I mean, some of them claiming to be religious in the same breath, but you know, they're, they're, they're trying to find the meaning of their life in, you know, attempting to find, I mean, look, this is the urge from the beginning. This is what Marxism represents. It's a sublimation. It's the opposite of what it thinks it is. Like Marxism thinks that it has, or, you know, go back to this move comes before Buck and, you know, the, the idea that, or Hegel indeed, the idea, you know, there's this idea in left Hegelianism that, okay, we're going to turn the ideal into material. We won't be idealists, we'll be materialists. So, you know, the telos is all going to be framed in terms of materiality. We'll throw out all the religion and we're going to, religion, if it had a purpose, was a material purpose, we're just going to, you know, put it put it all in a material register. And that that goes and goes, well, all this religious nonsense that we've had, you know, forever was all just misunderstanding what was really a material struggle. You know, really, my, my claim is something like historical materialism is the opposite of what it thinks it is. It's merely, it's a sublimation of a religious search into, into materialism. So, you know, what you get with Marx is Christianity, but instead of going like, you know, there, there will be, you know, whatever the trumpet will sound and the, the dead will leap forth from their graves. It's like, no, 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 we'll have this in reality. We'll, we'll do it all for real within historical time through, you know, the proletariat, which all sounds very nice, but actually, you know, my problem with it is it's, it helps itself to precisely the same level of like wishful thinking as religion, but while posing as like a scientific analysis, which I think it isn't. And, you know, I I don't think it's going to happen. And if it is going to happen, it's going to happen via a miracle. And if you're going to believe in miracles, like why not believe the whole thing? Like why, why do you have to, to use your term naturalizer. Yeah, this is that's pretty interesting. I don't really know what to say to that, other than I suspect it sounds broadly right, but I also know that 
all our Marx's friends are going to be mad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is. I, I don't know. I don't know what. Like, I mean, I'm pretty much getting to the point where I think this is unbroadcastable. Like the entire, you know, the entire prospective audience of this podcast in in real life are like people who will vehemently disagree with it and grab their pitchforks. So. I don't, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't even know what the point would be in uploading it, but I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking die!